Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women a chance to get honest and open about what it's really like surviving and thriving in what often feels like a male-dominated world. All of my guests have been handpicked from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real issue. I know this only too well, having been a mechanical engineer myself for a number of years. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, now a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting-edge technology and innovation over the years, and through my TV work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. These women are true trailblazers, and I've often felt so empowered myself by learning what they're like as real people, usually when the cameras have been turned off. Each week on Silence, one of these women shares her unique experiences and truth without the usual pressure of having to promote her accomplishments or uphold an image or facade. How? Because all of my guests are deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we as listeners are not distracted or even intimidated by the usual kinds of societal labels. The women of STEM on this show have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us, and I want to share the inspiration and wisdom that I've enjoyed from them with you. It's my hope that you really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even leave some comments and reviews. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of chemical biology. Hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. I must say, I have never met someone who is doing both chemistry and biology at the same time in a degree. That's very impressive. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's very new to me too. Um, How's it going? Yes, it's good. It's very different. Um, I originally have a background in chemistry. That's what I did my undergraduate first degree in. Um, but chemical biology is all about using chemistry and applying it to biology problems. Um, and then instead of outsourcing the biological testing to a biologist, I get trained in that aspect of it as well. So then I do it myself. So it gives me full ownership over creation of something and then testing it in the biological context, which is really exciting. Gosh, so are you currently doing a postgrad then? Yes, I'm working towards a PhD. Wow, cool. So in the beginning, when you're a kid, did you know that you would end up doing what you're doing? No, I had no idea. Um, for a long time, I thought I was going to be a doctor because um, I, the school I went to, it wasn't an amazing school. And uh, if you were good at science, especially if you're a woman, they'd uh, kind of tell you, oh, you're good at science, therefore you're going to be a nurse. And then eventually, a few years later, they'd say, oh, OK, maybe you're so good, you could be a doctor. Um, but that's kind of what I thought science could get you to. I didn't realise until I was about 17, really, that I could be a scientist. And um, I did all my medical school entry exams. I passed them all. Um, I did lots of work experience. And it was actually by volunteering in hospitals that I thought, this isn't for me. The emotional component of dealing with patients is too much. So I thought, OK, I want to um, find a way where I can help people in medicine by doing research myself without having the aspect of dealing with people. I mean, I love dealing with people. My issue with it was... Um, when things would go wrong, I would just feel too emotional about it and it would then impact my work. And I thought I, I wouldn't be a good doctor because I would kind of take my work home with me. I would obsess over my failures and then 
I just wouldn't treat my patients. I wouldn't give them the care that they deserve because I wouldn't be performing to my fullest abilities because I'd be affected emotionally. Mm. And how did you feel about making a decision like that? Like, did you feel like you were turning your back on something or was it the actual opposite? You thought you were being of more use? It was it was quite conflicting. I ended up um, taking a year out before going to university because I thought I really don't want to rush into this. I want to really make sure that I make the right decision. Um, and taking a year out was kind of a big decision for me as well because I thought, oh, does that mean I'm setting my career back by a year? But actually, I was a year ahead in school anyway. So I managed to sort of justify it to myself that way, which is ridiculous because, right. you know, one should never have to justify to yourself oh, I'm taking a bit of a break. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I just felt kind of all this pressure. I think a lot of it was me giving pressure to myself and also my teachers and everyone had always kind of thought, oh, you're the best at science. You know, they had all these high expectations. I'd gotten so used to, thanks to the years of, of 11, everyone saying, oh, you're going to be an amazing doctor one day, that I just kind of had to think, okay, I need to take some time out away from school and make sure I make this decision for myself because of what I want to do, not the pressures I'm feeling. And and how was that year out for you? It was great. Um, I did some traveling. I did some. I did lots of different um, part time jobs. I did some volunteering. That's what started me getting into outreach as well, because I realised um, from my experiences of being a young female school student in STEM subjects, I thought actually I'd like to wear raise awareness of um, different career paths you can do that aren't medicine. So I started doing lots of volunteering in schools, giving talks. I also thought because I was so young at the time, I was a lot more relatable to um, young schoolgirls than a teacher who kind of shows up in a suit every day and they think, oh, they're my parents' age and they can't really mm. relate to as well. Yeah, it is really difficult to relate to other women. I think I, that's why I chose to have an anonymous podcast, because I think it's so crucial to have female role models. But I also think that there's a little bit of a difficulty in relating to them. What's your view on that? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's a really, it's, oh, it's a really difficult question. Um, I'm trying to think back over all the female role models I've had, and I'm really glad that I've had them. I think it's extremely important as a woman in STEM to have female role models, but sometimes they can be really hard to find, to be honest. Especially within academia. Now that when I was an undergraduate, there were plenty of female PhD students. That was fine. But now that I'm a PhD student, I'm sort of looking at, you know, postdocs or lecturers. There aren't many women. Um, for example, um, last term, as part of my PhD, I had um, quite a few lectures and I had to sit some exams. It's kind of it's it's not just a straight PhD. It's four years. You kind of do some extra training because it's chemical biology. You can't really do an undergraduate degree in it. You get some extra training. And um, I had, I think, 16 lecturers last term and not a single one was a woman. That's interesting because I would have thought that subscribing to stereotypes, women tend to go into biology. Yeah, that is true. I think um, because this particular course I'm doing um, was it was physical scientists. So it was chemists and engineers giving us lectures on how they'd apply things to biology, which actually, yes, you know, in hindsight, it would have been beneficial to have some biologists come in as well. So apart from the fact that 
they're not physically there. What do you think the difficulties are for young girls in relating to the female role models that do exist? Um, I think in lots of situations, the female role models, but the people that do make it that far, the women that make it that far, um, have had to really, really excel in their fields. They've had to work at least twice as harder as the men. So I think lots of young female students that haven't really you know, found their self-confidence fully yet might see those women and think, you know, they are absolutely incredible women. I, I would never be that good. I'd never be able to, you know, have those achievements. Right. So it's like intimidation. Yes, exactly. Have you experienced that yourself? Um, I have, yes. Um, when I did my undergraduate degree, um, there was one female professor at the university that kind of took on a sort of informal mental role for me. And um, I then found out that she was the only female professor in the entire history of the department, which was about, you know, over 100 years old. Um, so, yes, she was quite intimidating. And um, when I found out that, that did sort of change my interactions with her because I thought not only is she a professor, which is already an incredible achievement, she is the first female professor and she's choosing to dedicate time to me. And I just thought, am I the most kind of appropriate person for her to mentor? You know, am I qualified enough? Do I have enough potential? Am I good enough? Mm. It's interesting, though, because all those questions that you're asking yourself were all to do with your levels of self-confidence and self-esteem. Yes. Yes, I guess they were. Yeah, which is, I find that fascinating because it's kind of like, well, Maybe if we encouraged girls to sort of develop their self-confidence and self-esteem, then role models would actually have a more effective impact. Yes, I think that's right. Um, I think that is the main sort of thing holding um, women back in their set. Well, um, that prevents people from women to relate from relating to uh, role models. I think it is, you know, them looking at kind of comparing themselves to the role model and thinking, oh, I'm not there yet. You know, I don't mm. think I can relate to them because I'm not as good as them. And I think as you progress throughout your career, you kind of gain more self-confidence. Also, you kind of, um, the achievement gap is smaller between you and your role models. Um, so you can relate more to them. But I think there's a big problem in that fewer and fewer women are moving through the academic ladder. I think lots of women will drop out at earlier stages because of confidence issues and, you know, a variety of other factors such as um, maternity leave policies and, uh, you know, unsociable working hours. There's lots of different factors. Uh, but I do yeah. think if self-confidence was more promoted and, you know, I mean, a way to do that would be to have more role models. And just I just basically think that we really do need more women in STEM especially in senior management roles, because if you have more, then people wouldn't be as intimidated by them because they wouldn't think, oh, there's this one professor in the entire department. You know, her time is extremely valuable. If there were 10, then you'd know that you're not the only person being mentored. It also takes the pressure off the mentor. Yes, exactly. That was the other thing I felt every time I'd sort of meet with her, I would think, you know, I know how busy she is. She also led the... Um, the department's equality and diversity um, committee and everything. She did a lot of work and she led a very successful group. So I think, you know, she really could have done with some other female colleagues, you know, as senior as her helping her out. 
So apart from women dropping out and for various reasons, be it sort of like maternity and all the rest of it, why else do you think women don't exist in these fields as frequently as men do? I think there is quite a lot of sexism within academia. And um, up until quite recently, I hadn't really experienced it. I think as an undergraduate, when I started, um, it was about a 50-50 gender split in chemistry. Chemistry is one of the sort of better courses within STEM um, when it comes to gender differences. But then when I reached uh, my master's year, um, I had some sort of issues with um, some male members of staff that then resulted in me having to file a formal complaint against said member of staff because I wasn't being treated fairly. Um, In what way? Well, um, so this member of staff was, he was a lecturer and he sort of took special interest in me. And I didn't really realise at the time. And he started by saying, oh, you're doing all of these um, outreach activities and activities to try and promote diversity. I'd love to get involved. And I'm always very excited when men seem keen to get involved because I think yeah. it's so important for everyone to be part of these conversations involving diversity. I totally agree. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I thought, great. But then, um, so we sort of had a working relationship of about a year where he'd sort of he'd help with mentoring activities and uh, outreach activities. And as an undergraduate, I really needed a member of staff to just do simple tasks like booking rooms and, you know, signing off forms. Um, So he did that for me. But then he kind of slowly, he started putting me down and I realised that his career wasn't progressing at the rate he wanted it to. And I think he didn't like that mine was. So I got an offer from a very good institution to do a PhD which is where I'm at now and uh, I know that he had tried to get a job there and had gotten rejected so he then started telling me things like oh I could have gone there and uh, oh the department you're joining isn't even all that good and do you think you got in just because you're a woman and they wanted to fill a diversity quota yes and um so I just, at one point, I just said, would you be saying these things if I were a man? And he said, no. And then I thought, right, this is the time to take action. So I went to um, some women in the department, um, some of his colleagues, some people a bit higher up. And I just had an informal conversation with them. And then, uh, and it, the timing was terrible as well. This was also the day before my graduation. But I thought, I have to do this because it's not even... It, it won't even affect just me. If this member of staff treats me like this, then he'll probably continue doing the same to other female students. And um, yeah, luckily the department was extremely supportive. I'd been a great student and I'd never had any issues before, so they trusted me. And I mean, they should have anyway, but I'm very glad they did. And uh, he now doesn't work there anymore, which I'm quite glad about. But yeah, going through that, you know, kind of really made me realise because I thought, I guess that there was, I didn't really realise the extent to, that he was being sexist until a few months in. So it also made me really have I come across any other situations where there's been kind of yeah. minor sexism instances that I haven't picked up on. And I also thought it can happen to anyone. You know, this was, I think it definitely happened because I was transitioning from a kind of master's level to a PhD. 
And I think he realized that I had more potential than he'd had at my age. Um, and I think he felt insecure by that. And he thought that he could kind of prey on my gender and try and put me down with it, which didn't work. But I'm very glad that I it didn't work on me and that I knew how to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I ultimately want to ask you the question how you knew to speak up. But before we get there, I think it's so difficult to even know at the time that we are being subjected to treatment that is just not okay. Yes, it really is. Before you actually spoke out, what were the indicators to you that the, your treatment was uncomfortable? Um, it was it was kind of a series of events that escalated that were quite close together. And they were all right before I was about to leave, which looking back on it, I do realise it was it was him essentially acting out because I was leaving. And I think wanting to make me feel worse than I was because I was leaving to go somewhere better than he'd managed. Um, so there was an award ceremony where I ended up winning um, the sort of the most promising alumni of the year across engineering and science, which I was not expecting at all. And I was blown away by. And uh, he wasn't really invited, but he managed to show up anyway. And uh, so that whole evening when I was winning the award, he was just kind of just drinking, you know, just kind of being really negative, just drawing attention to himself. Um, so that was one thing, which, again, at the time I sort of brushed off. But then because there was a series of events after that, then um, so I had this housemate who was female as well. And he sort of started flirting with her, which was extremely inappropriate. And then he started sending me messages saying, how would you feel if I were to date her? And I would say, firstly, I want nothing to do with this. I'm leaving. I want you out of my life. Our professional relationship ended. I don't see any need why we should continue in any other way. And um, I would also say, and, you know, it's also, you can't start a relationship with her. And he'd, he'd kind of say, why? Why can't I? And I just say, basically, just leave me alone. And then um, she was kind of, I mean, he was very, he was good at being very charming. And um, yeah. in fact, when he'd lectured us, Lots of the female students had kind of, you know, developed sort of crushes on him. I never had, but it meant my friend, you know, was kind of falling for this act. Um, yeah. And, yes, exactly. And uh, then a few of my friends, um, you know, they're all incredibly supportive. I'm so glad that I had incredibly supportive friends throughout all of this. Um, they then said, right, we're going to make a complaint against him. You know, if you don't feel ready, that's fine but we want to do one anyway, based on our, what we've observed. And um, mm -hmm. he found out about this. I think it was my friend that he'd sort of entrapped a bit. I think she found out and she told him. And then he started trying to threaten me and he started saying things such as, um, if people complain, they'll be the ones that will suffer. Now, I was hired by this senior person. He's going to protect me. And um, if your friends complain, it will be on their academic record forever. Things that just weren't true. And when, then when I made the complaint, you know, I found that out. Um, and I think the escalating moment was he ended up kind of messaging me at 2 a.m. one morning, right before my friends were going to make the complaint, just kind of trying to threaten me. And it ended up giving me a panic attack. And I never really get panic attacks. And he knew this. So that's when I thought, OK, you know, I'm in, in a very supportive environment. My career's going well. 
Um, I have supportive friends. I have a great boyfriend. Um, if he's making me feel like this, how could he make other people who aren't as lucky as me feel? And that's why I immediately emailed my personal tutor, who was a woman, which I think really helped. And uh, I said, can we meet? Um, there's something important I want to discuss. And she took it very seriously from the tone of the email. She said, of course. And she said, do you want um, a welfare officer to be there as well, who was also female, which was also very beneficial. And um, so then I had about a week to prepare for this meeting. And I thought, OK, I want to really present a case. So I went through old email conversations, all sorts of things to collect specific things he'd said so that I could present to them the exact way he'd said them, which was, you know, quite emotionally difficult because at that point I realized that, you know, it had been an ongoing problem. So looking back, I kind of I would read things and think, ah, OK, this wasn't OK at the time, but I didn't pick up on it. But I'm so glad I did that. I also partly did it because I didn't want to just go into a meeting, file a complaint and um, paraphrase things or say them in a way that, you know, I also thought I want to be fair to him. I don't want to yeah. make the things he said seem much, much worse. And then that could have affected me. I could have got into trouble. Uh, but I also don't want to make the things he said not seem as serious as they were. How do you reckon you did come across? Like, were people generally on your side? They were, absolutely. My personal tutor knew me quite well. It turns out then that um, the welfare officer had been at that awards ceremony as well and had seen me win. And um, she said, when you walked up on stage, um, you got the biggest round of applause the entire night. And she said, you know, I could see how respected you were by everyone at the university. Um, so she was saying, you know, we would believe you anyway, especially with this proof. But knowing that you were a respected member of the community and all the great work you'd done and all the achievements you'd got kind of really, I mean, it helped. Gosh, it did help. You've been through a lot. Yes. Um, and then my personal, too, it was a very emotional, it ended up being a two and a half hour meeting where we all discussed this. And my personal tutor at one point teared up and said, I'm so sorry you've gone through this. And, you know, her apologising really meant a lot. It was absolutely not her fault. She had nothing to do with it. But I think it was kind of just woman to woman. And then they both told me that they'd experienced similar things, maybe not to that extent. But, yes, I just think it's so important to have women you can go to to discuss these things, um, especially ones that can relate to what you've been through. And I just felt so safe. And in that meeting, I just I knew I'd done the right thing. And they, they were just so thankful and also so apologetic for what I was going through. And um, yeah, I now have a fantastic relationship with the university. I mean, I've left now, but I'm in touch. I get invited back to talk at events. Um, yeah, so I'm just I'm very glad that, you know, they kind of took my side over a member of staff. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel quite sort of teared up as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, no, just uh, do you know what I, I'm? I'm quite emotional over your story because um, I kind of just think of my own journey. Yeah. Um, and I was not blessed with the awareness that I was going through things that were unacceptable. So I, I'm so. Um, I'm so happy for you that you had that support yes. and you were able to 
speak up. Thank you. How how did you how did you know to do that? Like, were you did you have people in your corner bringing it out of you, or have you been educated to always speak up? Like, where did that assertiveness come from? Um, I think the bottom line is it came from me. Um, I think it's from a lot of the outreach I've done. I've done a lot of work with um, disadvantaged pupils in local schools and I've seen them go through bullying and go through really difficult family situations. And I'm not qualified to deal with those things, but I've had quite a few instances where young pupils will kind of try and open up to me. And then what I've done is I've kind of coached them towards opening up to teachers or counsellors, which they found very, very scary. But in the end has really benefited them. And then sometimes I would then, weeks later, um, sometimes they would thank me and they'd say, you know, I was really terrified to talk to this teacher who I've always been quite scared of, but I'm really glad I did because I'm now getting the help I need. So I think I saw, I, I just thought, you know, I've been, I've helped so many pupils go through this so I think I kind of owe it to them as well to do the same thing and apply what's worked to them to me and um, after that I did have incredible support from my friends every single one of my friends was incredibly supportive as I said you know they ended up making a complaint as well Um, but it was kind of them it was them having the assertiveness of not asking me to complain them saying you know, I mean, at one point, one of them said, you know, if if you came along with us, it would kind of have more gravitas. It would have more of an effect coming directly from you. But we don't want to ask you that. We're going to do what we can. You, you can just sit back. You don't have to worry about anything. So, you know, I thought my friends are being so selfless and going through this and involving themselves in a situation that's not particularly pleasant and you know, then they will get questioned. They're dragging themselves into a place where they really don't have to. And I think lots of other people I know would never do that for someone. So I thought, you know, yes, I'm I'm going to do it as well. Just having all that support, having all these people already having started things just really encouraged me because I knew that even if things went wrong, I'd have them to fall back on and that they would mm-hmm. say, you know, it was really brave of you and we're really proud that you did that. And that is what they said. And it meant a lot. Do you think you spoke out at the time you did because you were leaving? Yes. Yeah, I I wish that hadn't been a factor, but it was. It was also, I mean, the timing, you know, the last few events were the week before. But yes, you know, maybe if I hadn't, if I'd had another year left, maybe it would have taken me longer to realise, maybe I would have put up with with it for longer. I don't know. Um, My personal tutor, that's one of the first things she said. She said, I'm really, really sorry you've been through this. I'm also sorry about the timing. You know, if we'd known earlier, maybe we could have stopped some of these things from happening. But then she also said, but I'm also glad about the timing because it means you can really step away and let us deal with things and you don't have to be around. And then I specifically requested that I didn't want to know what happened. I I know that they then had a meeting with him. And um, at one point I got an email asking for my permission to discuss some of the things that I'd said which was another big decision because it meant he would know exactly, you know, that it was me and what I said. Um, But they respected my decision of not kind of not telling me about the outcome Um, because I I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm moving to a new city. I'm moving, you know, I'm starting 
a new um a new degree essentially and I just want you know I don't want this kind of negative energy in my life anymore and they also um they specifically requested so this was the day before graduation as I said earlier they uh, immediately after the meeting I walked out and uh, they called up someone to specifically ban him from coming to my graduation and I hadn't requested this and uh, they also they said okay we won't tell you what we'll discuss with him because you specifically asked us not to but we will tell him that he under no circumstances can contact you or anyone close to you again and that if he does you will come straight to us and there will you know serious action will be taken wow i mean i i am thinking about the members of the audience that don't have that kind of support network that you yes. um had i mean you you really sound it sounds like you really had a fortress around you I really did support. yes um and I you know I want to kind of just acknowledge any listeners that don't have those kinds of friends maybe because they're doing subjects where there aren't many girls around to sort of become friends with I mean they may be in subjects that are so heavily male dominated that it's difficult to find friends yes. um and it's difficult to find maybe female mentors um, and seniors. Do you have any advice for anyone that maybe is in that position? I'd say there's always going to be people going through the same thing. Um, I know they could be difficult to find. Um, for example, I know that the Royal Society of Chemistry is about to start an official sort of, I think they're calling it a bullying hotline or something like that, um, where I think if you, especially as a woman, if you experience any sort of you know, bullying or harassment, I think there'll be a phone number 24-7 that you can call and get, for, get advice from. So I would say even if in your immediate circle there isn't, you know, you don't have that supportive network like I did, I think looking at institutional bodies to sort of like the Royal Society of Chemistry or, you know, the engineering equivalents, there will be people through there. There will be some sort of, you know, um, help available. There'll be some sort of either counselling service and, you know, they can help these institutions, you know, they accredit lots of the universities and lots of the degrees. So, you know, it's also in their best interests for members of staff at universities that they work with that they sort of behave in an appropriate manner and that they represent these yeah. institutions well. Um, what was your early childhood like? You know, were you, what kind of kid were you and what were your caregivers like, you know, your parents? I'm just trying to like understand the origin of your self-assuredness, really. <laughs> well, um, my parents were great. I think they, also, they always um, gave me a lot of independence um I I sort of I sent myself away to boarding school when I was 10 because I really liked music and for a while I thought that's what I wanted to do and there was this kind of boarding school that specialized in music and I thought oh that sounds really fun and I was really shy at the time um because I was at a school where there weren't many other kind of musical or scientist um students so I think my parents were terrified that I said hey can I go off to boarding school because they thought, oh, she's very shy. Will she make friends? But I don't know. It always just it felt like the right thing to me. But they were very good at not showing me their concerns. They were always 
very supportive and basically said, we trust you, you know, whatever you want to do, we'll do our best to support you with. So I went off to boarding school and I think that really changed me, just being around people like me. Um, I wasn't kind of considered a geek anymore because there are people there like me. Did you choose your school? I did, yes. There was an audition process because there was, you know, it was musical. So I also had to be good at music. But yes, um, before that, my parents moved around a lot. So I've actually, I counted just a few days ago and I've been to eight different schools and academic institutions. So we moved around a lot, which I think was, you know, the source of my shyness at a younger age. But then it just got to a point where I thought, right, you know, this new school I'm at, I might only have a year or two. I don't know yet. So, you know, I might as well put myself out there. And if I think I'm embarrassing myself, or, you know, not being cool by talking a lot, then that's fine. You know, I have nothing to lose. Um, so, yes, I, I, I would say my childhood, you know, at first I found it challenging from moving around all the time. And then my parents divorced. And, you know, there was some tension there, but then it also made me grow up fast. How old were you when they divorced? Um, Twelve. And it was it was quite an ugly divorce. And um, then they tried to get back together. But I was the one that said, look, this isn't working. If you're trying to do it for me, this isn't going to make me any happier. Just don't. And um, then things got ugly between them. And um, I was the one who said, I don't want to go to court. You know, I'm 12. I don't want to have to speak up about custody. So I said, I'd like to arrange my own custody agreement. I will aim to spend my time 50-50 with you, but it's up to me where I spend the night. Amazing. Yes. (laughs) So that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, I just knew that they'd always trusted me to be independent. So I thought, well, at this time they should too why change their attitude towards parenting now and now I have a great relationship with both of them and where do you get your stem genes from nowhere Uh, no one in my family is a scientist um I don't know I think the way my brain works has always been very mathematical and I think that's actually why I was so good at music um yes um but I liked, so I found that, you know, I was I was very, very good at maths as well. So I liked, you know, the maths sort of science, you know, sort of um, situation of you have a problem, you work it out, there is a right answer or a wrong one. I liked that. But I also liked being able to mm. be creative with it, which I think then when I was introduced to science in school, um, oh, it's also probably worth mentioning that I grew up in a different country where um, science isn't really introduced until later. So then as soon as it was introduced, I just thought, oh, I like this because it allows me to still be creative whilst having this problem-solving attitude. Gosh, it sounds like all the adversity you've gone through, you've turned it around to make them golden opportunities. I mean, that's what I've tried. So, um, you know, I very much appreciate you saying that. Have you tried that consciously or...? Is that with hindsight that you realise that, you know, that's what you're doing? Yes, I think um, when my parents split up, I kind of, I realised they'd been unhappy and that they'd been unhappy because of a series of decisions they'd made. Um, And then that made me realise, oh, I don't want to be like that. 
and I'm in charge of my own decisions. So from now on, I'm going to make sure that the decisions I make, you know, are to have a positive outcome on my life. Um, and that's what I've tried ever since. And that's also why I then chose to leave the country I grew up in, because I thought, well, you know, my parents speak English. I speak English. I think there's more opportunities for me in a different country that will also give me even more independence. So, yes, I just I got myself. I worked really hard to get myself scholarships and bursaries and help. And I moved over to England for sixth form and then just stayed on. Amazing. Do you know what? It sounds like you have discovered something that some people take a whole lifetime to discover, which is the importance of taking responsibility for your own life. Yes, absolutely. Because I think even adults in their more senior years continue to blame other people for the way their life has gone. I've definitely been guilty of that. Where yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, my parents pushed me, I'm such a victim. <laughs> and, you know, and, and snapping out of that and just saying, you know what, my attitude is my own choice is one of the most mature and positive things you can do for yourself. And it sounds like you discovered that at the age of 12. Oh, I, I guess maybe I did. Thanks. Um, yeah, I also, you know, I wasn't even thinking of it in that way. I thought at the time, I want to make sure that my achievements are mine. I don't want to feel like I owe anything to anyone, partly so that then people can't hold things over me and say, oh, I got this. Um, yeah, and I just thought, I thought I'd have a much greater sense of fulfillment if I got something because I knew I'd worked hard towards it. So, you know, not through nepotism or, you know, through my parents pushing me. I just thought if it's, you know, through just me, then I'll just feel, it will feel a lot more rewarding. And then I thought, you know, I thought I'd be able to sort of help other people and inspire others more if I could kind of go into a school and do outreach and I could say I did this myself and my background wasn't that different to yours you know I did come from you know not much money and you know not much not many scientists around but mm. I managed it and so can you. But then so how come you never ever had a case of poor me look what I'm having having to do all by myself you know no one's helping me, you know, that kind of like resentful yeah. thing that people can fall into that they've got it so tough. Did you ever suffer from that? Or, and if not, how come? Not really. I'm, I'm very hard on myself. You know, I've had several situations where I think, oh, I haven't done as well as I could have, but I'll always think, oh, but that was, you know, that was because of me. Um, I, I don't know why. Um, yeah, I just always thought that I'm in charge of my own life. I think it's because of that independence that my parents gave me from a young age. You know, even simple things such as I would always do my homework by myself. So I think it's just from a young age, I just thought, yes, you know, my work is mine and uh, no one should give me help, especially I think once I got to A-level, you know, because I came from a non-scientific family, um, I thought, you know, my parents couldn't even help me if they wanted to. And at this point, I was in a different country to them as well. So that was another factor. Um, so I thought, you know, if they can't help me, then it's all up to me. Mm. And it sounds like you have an incredible amount of respect for your parents, despite what you've gone through. 
Yes. I mean, you know, the issues they had were with each other. And uh, at some points, you know, they kind of, they didn't ever take it out on me, but I guess everyone, everyone who's listening, who's um, come from, well, who's a child of divorce will know that, you know, when parents get divorced, there's always some of it ends up affecting the child, whether they intend it to or not. So I think just me kind of speaking up and saying, hey, this is affecting me in this way. I think if you did it this other way, it wouldn't so much. I can't believe that. I mean, it's so advanced, you know, so mature to be able to say, how about this as a solution? I'll choose who I spend my time with. I mean, that's just sheer brilliance. Yeah, it just it just felt like the most logical thing at the time, really. I just thought both my parents love me, but they don't love each other. But if they both love me, then they they should respect what I want. Yeah, just, that's what I thought at the time. I don't even think it wasn't an ego thing or anything. I just thought, you know, if they don't like each other and they can't communicate effectively with each other, why should they make decisions when they're very biased? You know, if I like love them both equally and they both love me equally, then I'm the least biased person in the situation. So I should make these decisions. It's just absolute genius. I love it. Oh. <laughs> Tell me about the, you said you're very hard on yourself. Yes. What form does that take? Is it a positive thing or a negative thing or both? I think it's both. I think it used to be more negative. So for example, I I mean, I, I didn't do badly in my levels, but I didn't do as amazingly as I was expecting based on my previous academic records in this other country I grew up in, you know, I was kind of expecting A stars and then I didn't, I got a few Bs. Um, and at the time, you know, I kind of thought, oh, I could have revised harder. I could have done this. I couldn't have done that. But then I also thought, no, actually I moved to a different country by myself when I was 16 and I had to not only learn things in a different language. Yes, I spoke English, but I'd never done it in an academic setting before. And I was a year ahead in school. You know, there are a lot of factors. Um, But yes, you know, it took me quite a few years to get over that. But then I think, you know, then I took a year out. Then when I ended up at university and I was amongst people that had straight A stars and were brilliant, I thought, actually, from now on, my A-levels don't even matter. So I thought, you know, what I need to do is just you know, move forward. Now I've been in England enough time that I can, you know, do better. And I'll, I'll know that it's not just me that didn't work hard. I'll know if I'm actually good at this or not. And then I got a first class um, mark in my degree. So I kind of felt like I'd redeemed myself a bit. And I think what changed was um, kind of the longer I spent in England, the more friends I made. And um, I met my boyfriend and kind of they helped tell me, you know, if I'd ever kind of do not so great in something, they'd be really supportive and say, yeah, but look at how hard you had it to get to the chance to do this thing in the first place. And look at all these other amazing things you did. And also, at the end of the day, this one tiny thing doesn't matter. It will have basically zero impact on your life overall. And what you need to do is just keep going and that's what you've always done. So you should keep going and we're here to support you. Wow. Do you know, it's it's self-love. You have a very healthy amount of self-love, which I think is crucial. Yeah, I think it took me a while to get here. Um, when I was seven, I remember in class, so I just moved school for I don't know what time. And um it was a school in this tiny village where pretty much everyone was related. So all the, I mean, 
I don't mean it in a weird way. I mean, all the children in the class were kind of second cousins of each other. Um, so I was kind of the odd one out. I was the new girl. And um, at one point, I don't know, we had this sort of really basic ethics class for seven-year-olds. And uh, the person conducting it kind of asked, OK, can I have a quick show of hands? Who here likes themselves? Everyone put their hands up except for me. And then when they said, who here doesn't like themselves? I was the only one who put my hand up. And uh, the school actually did nothing about it. And then I think my parents kind of went in. You know, this is another show of them being really supportive. Um, they just went, spoke to my school teacher and said, you know, first they said they thought I was bored in class and I should be moved forward a grade. Um, and then they also said that, you know, clearly I had some self-esteem issues. And then what the school said was, oh, well, she's a great student. We only offer counselling to bad students. She doesn't need it. Wow. Did your parents go in to speak to the school because of the show of hands of who likes themselves and who doesn't? Was that related? I think so, yes. I think I just got home and I told them because at that point, you know, I probably did what most little children do. And I just, they'll say, what, you know, what did you do at school today? And I just said it. And I didn't, you know, they didn't show me how concerned they were. But then they told me a few years later, they said, yeah, we were concerned about your self-esteem. And honestly, we didn't feel very well equipped on how to deal with it so we tried to ask the school for professional help they didn't give us any so then we thought right we'll try and do something then so what happened was it resolved um the school did nothing um I don't really remember actually it's kind of mostly just a blur as I said I think it took a, you know a few years to go from that to then when I was 12 and me deciding my own custody mm. agreement um I think it was yeah, I, I do think, I think it was probably the next time I moved to school, that's when I kind of realised, you know, um, I, I think I also, I had a moment of realising I move around a lot, I'm an only child, um, you know, in some situations I'm the only constant factor that I have. When I move into a new school and everyone's already friends, I'm the only person that will be you are all you've got exactly so I thought so you know I might as well like me and if I don't like me then um I'm gonna change myself so I do like me it's so amazing god why didn't you like yourself at the age of seven do you know now um I think it was mostly because of what other people thought and you know I think other people didn't act as if they liked me because I was always a new girl I think that was basically it you know right. yeah so which made me think oh there's something wrong with me whereas then I really yeah personally and also you know I, I think um I was always considered the foreign girl as well even though I grew up there because my parents were English speakers um yes yeah, just small things such as sometimes at school my parents would give me um carrots and celery for snacks and the other school children would have like a chocolate, you know, croissant or junk food. And they'd be like, oh, look at the weird foreign girl who's also new, like they're eating her celery. And I would just, at first, I'd kind of feel really embarrassed. And I would then ask my parents, please don't pack me any more celery. But then I kind of got to a point where I said, I like celery and it's healthier. And it gives me a better kind of energy because, you know, if you just eat chocolate, you're just bouncing along the walls and my salary energy is more sustained. So it's just small things oh, like that. And I just managed to turn them yeah. around and go from, well, I like them and 
you know, what should matter is if I like them because I'm the one doing them. That's so amazing. So inspirational. I mean, you know, this idea that essentially through the pain of not fitting in, you found yourself. Yeah. You know, it's just incredibly powerful. What does the future look like for you? What are your plans? Do you have any? Um, Well, I've just started a four-year PhD, so I guess I'll finish that first. Um, Yeah, I chose to do my PhD because I really enjoyed my master's and I thought it came back to me wanting to do medicine from a young age as well. I just thought I really want to have the chance to do a single piece of work that I think could really potentially have an impact on other people and help their health. Um, And I really wanted the chance because during my master's, my master's was great, but it was, you know, it was only five months, six months. So I didn't really have the chance to take full ownership over a piece of research and complete it. So I really wanted that opportunity so I can really make something mine and put in, you know, a lot of effort and really, you know, make it into something great. Um, But after that, I'm not really sure what I want to do. Maybe I want to continue with research. I know that I definitely want to do some sort of science communication thing. Um, I've been doing that throughout my my undergraduate. And now I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of outreach. I set up mentoring schemes in schools. I judge science competitions. I just like talking to young children that were like me. And I know sometimes they find it hard to relate to me because just small things such as my accent, you know, I kind of, I sound, lots of pupils will say, oh, well, you sound posh. How do we know you came from a low-income background and similar to ours? Or, you know, when I say the institution I study at and the level of qualification I'm getting, sometimes people don't necessarily relate to me, but I'm going to keep trying. I just think it's really important. And uh, even if they don't recognize me as kind of one of them, then you know, I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And I think I can help them in ways that they don't necessarily notice. And uh, so I'm going to carry on doing it. It's so tricky, isn't it? Because as individuals, we want to strive to be our best. But at the same time, sometimes it can kind of leave us on a golden pedestal. And that's a very lonely place. Yes. Yes, it is. How do you resolve that balancing act um I think that is partly why I do so much volunteer work um I think that probably is I I like to think that I do it selflessly but I think it's also it has a selfish component of me you know using it as a way to keep myself grounded to always make sure you know yes I've achieved things and I'm very proud of them but this is where I came from and it's my responsibility it's my generation's responsibility to make sure that the younger generation can achieve what we've achieved and even if I had some rough patches I've had lots of advantages that other people haven't you know I did have supportive parents that gave me that independence I was able to achieve good grades to get myself scholarships not everyone is capable of doing that so I think you know I have had privilege in some senses so I do think I have a responsibility socially to go and try and encourage the next generation of scientists and engineers because you know we are the future and at the moment my generation is the future but in a few years you know it's the children that are now in primary school 
what about the different aspects of being a woman? You know, like what about fitting in motherhood and relationships and things like that? Like how how do you negotiate your way through that? That is it is difficult, as I said, especially because you know, I've only experienced being a woman, so I don't always recognize bias or sexism immediately because I don't know what it would be like mm. if I was a man. Um, so that is difficult. I mean, unfortunately, I think the way to do it is I don't think it's up to us women. We don't need to change our attitudes. I think it's everyone else really that needs to be educated on that. You know, they should not treat us differently. Um we aren't less worthy. We shouldn't have to work harder. Um, so the way I do it is I just try and educate younger people, I think from a young age. Um, so I started a mentoring scheme during my undergraduate, which was um, in a local primary school that was um, really underperforming, really underfunded, really, really sad. In fact, um, halfway through my sessions, we had to cancel because they had a break in. Um, where I think seven windows were broken and some local youths stole all the school's computers and then they had to shut the school for a while because there was broken glass everywhere and it wasn't safe and they didn't have the money to hire people in to replace the windows. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really sad story. Um, sorry, where was I going with this? Um, yes, so it was a mixed school, but... Um, the teachers had told me that the boys were kind of very dominating and kind of intimidated the girls mm. quite a bit. Um, and also the girls came from families where lots of, I mean, lots of their mothers were very young. They were in their early 20s and uh, lots of their families kind of raised them with the idea of, oh, well, if you're a girl, you're going to have children and stay at home. And uh, if you're a man, then you're go do a plumbing apprenticeship or something like that um so the school and I worked together to trial um kind of separating a group of girls that were really underconfident and underperforming in science um we pulled them out one hour a week from the overall group I know there are 11 of them and once a week I would go in and run a stem workshop that I designed myself I would provide the materials I got funding for it um I would go in, I recruited volunteers um, and we'd run the activity with them and just try and get the girls talking about, this is fun, isn't it? Yeah, science is fun. You know, why wouldn't you want to do this? You're really good at it. Just trying to get that confidence mm. to increase. Um, and then by the end of the couple months we did this, um, two of the girls then got the highest stats grades in maths in the entire year. So they went from being kind of the bottom 11 to the two mm -hmm. best. Um, which was a huge achievement. So I'm very glad we did that um, and that, you know, I helped change these girls' perceptions of themselves. But I wish we'd done something with the boys as well. I mean, it's just impossible to do everything at once, especially while you're doing a degree. But I think it's, it's a really hard balance to find how do you help young women, you know, gain the self-confidence and the belief in themselves that they need and that they deserve but also how do you get young boys and men to truly respect women? And how can you do that all together? Do you have to separate them? You know, do you keep them together? It's just, I think there's a lot of questions and a lot of things to still work mm. out. Yeah, it's a very complex, multi-layered issue. Um, and it 
will not be solved with a quick fix. I mean, we have to change stereotypes, we have to change cultures, um, traditions, and, you know, it's a big task, but I think it's so necessary in order to get young women believing that they can be empowered within STEM. Yes, definitely. Gosh, I wish I could talk to you for hours more because I think, you know, you've just got so much wisdom to impart and I just, I've loved listening to you. I felt incredibly kind of enlightened in hearing your story and um, how you've turned things around through adversity. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun and thank you for being such a great listener and being so supportive. Oh, gosh, you're welcome. You've been a real asset to this series. So thank you. Thank you. That's it from my STEM guest this week. Gosh, so much was discussed that I feel like I need a few hours to go away and reflect on everything that was said. I I truly feel touched by my guests' experiences and honestly deeply inspired by hearing how she climbed out of very dark situations to come out winning. Thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to subscribe and I'll catch you next week on Silence.